Hi, welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And joining us for our regular Sunday breakdown of the wonderful events of the week are John Bennett from CQ Roll Call and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. This week, take a listen as we unpack the Ides of March and Donald Trump potentially facing charges in Manhattan. <clears throat> Mike Pence making comments about how Donald Trump has to pay on the campaign trail. I guess he's on the campaign trail. The continued Fox fallout, uh, a new uh, watch, uh, a new suit by Media Watch. And uh, DeSantis, is he running? Well, we don't know. He might be. And of course, the House GOP makes some moves. So stick around. I don't know what moves they are, but they are kind of sketchy. We'll be right back with more on Just Ask the Question. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Asked the Question. We can't forget the most important topic of the week, the uh, Washington, D.C. commanders are for sale. No, we'll get to that later. We're going to start with probably one of the biggest uh, we've been following for four years easily. Everyone in the media has um, the idea that Donald Trump may ultimately face the consequences for his actions seems to be coming to a head in uh, Manhattan. In speaking with Michael Zeldin and uh, John Bennett, we're going to try to unpack all of that. I'll start by saying I spoke with Michael Cohen not more than a day and a half ago. He's prepared to uh, be the last uh, witness before that he's been told. He's the last witness before the Manhattan District Attorney's Grand Jury. On Monday, Kellyanne Conway has testified. He's testified. Others have testified. They've invited invited Donald Trump to testify. And there's much speculation that Donald Trump could potentially face charges in Manhattan. And all of this stems around the payoff that uh, Michael Cohen made to Stormy <clears throat> Daniels to benefit Donald Trump and other assorted and sundry details. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Michael. You can unpack this one because this is your forte. Did you think uh, it? Uh, I've been told it's an exotic case that it's a stretch to make it a felony. That it's uh, uh, more likely a misdemeanor. Your take on all of it? To unpack the case, you have the allegation that Donald Trump, aware that Stormy Daniels was accusing him of having had an affair with her, just prior to the uh, election in 2016 arranged for a payoff of her $130,000 to buy her silence so that she wouldn't make these accusations prior to the election. The way they made the payment, according to uh, Michael Cohen and others, is that Michael Cohen was sort of the intermediary. He paid the money essentially out of his own pocket, the $130,000, and then was reimbursed by Donald Trump in a couple of uh, installments, and that those installment payments were listed on the business records of Donald Trump's business as being legal fees. Cohen has alleged that there was no such legal fee arrangement, and that this was just paying back the money that he fronted to keep Stormy Daniels from talking. 
So the prosecutors are looking at whether that is a crime. And it appears under New York business law criminal statute uh -huh. that it is a misdemeanor to make false entries on your business records. In this case, the false entry would be that money was paid to Michael Cohen for law, you know, for legal advice, when in fact it was the, the Stormy Daniels uh, payment cover-up. That's a misdemeanor. In order to make it a felony, that payment has to be made in furtherance, essentially, in furtherance of another crime. And so the question here is, what is that other crime that could make this from a misdemeanor to a felony? And the papers say, because the prosecutors aren't speaking, that it would be in furtherance of a election law violation, which would which means essentially that the money which was paid by Cohen was a was in essence a in-kind or actual financial contribution to the Trump campaign that wasn't reported uh, to the election commissions, New York and, and federal. And that is a crime. And so it would be in furtherance of the election law violation. Now, on paper, that case probably holds water. Uh, it probably is correct that the payment and non-reporting of it violates election law. But to think that you're going to bring a criminal felony case where the allegation is that you made the payment and it was in furtherance of the crime of not reporting this payment to the election commission, to me, seems <clears throat> a very dicey proposition. And so if I were a prosecutor on the publicly available evidence and I felt that this conduct need to be needs to be um, addressed, I would charge it as a misdemeanor. No one's going to jail. No one's not going to be. No one's going to be prevented from running for office. But that would be true if it was a felony, also. And you know, it's Mickey Mouse stuff, a, fel a misdemeanor. But if you're going for like the rule of law and nobody is above it, then what difference does it make to you um, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony? It proves the point that this was an illegal um, transaction or this transaction, which is not itself illegal, but not reporting it was illegal, was. Uh, undertaken by uh, then candidate Donald Trump. So taking it as a felony, Brian, on this theory that it somehow promoted an election law violation, I think it's a very dicey um, proposition for any prosecutor. And I don't think I would be the one who would say, uh, were, I, were I in charge, that this would be a smart decision to make. So I would stick with the misdemeanor if they feel that they have to charge because the rule of law and no one is above it, principle demands that he not get off um, and if I were Trump and I was charged with this thing, I think I'd take it to trial. Really? And <laughs> the question is, <laughs> before I get to John, I, 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 by your face, I'd love to see your reaction. But I, the question I have is, um, this is the one thing Michael Cohen says he went to prison for. Now, we know that he had many charges against him, but he he made the payment for Donald Trump. It was listed, you know, as gen what was it, person number one, or in the in the proceedings against against uh, Cohen. So he wants to know why why did he go to prison and Donald Trump won't? Well, he went to prison for a batch of things, and the thing that one needs to note about Michael Cohen, who I don't know, and I'm sure is you know a, a stand up sort of guy. Um, the thing that I don't know is one. Why did the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors, Mueller prosecutors, say that he was not going to get the type of sentencing recommendation for full cooperation when others got it because they didn't feel that he fully cooperated? They felt that he was withholding information from, from them. So that's not a good sign. Um, and um, second, as I said, he didn't go to jail uh for this. And so if you and, and the federal prosecutors who looked at the same charges that um, the state prosecutors looking at passed on bringing passed on bringing this case. So you got Mueller, who didn't give him uh, a full cooperation recommendation of his sentencing, the feds who passed on it, a novel theory of, of prosecution and Michael Cohen as your star witness. I, I don't know what you guys would want to do, but uh, I wouldn't want to take that case to a uh, a jury trial, even mm -hmm. in Manhattan. Even if, John, I saw you rolling your <laughs> eyes. 
<laughs> that's just my default setting. <laughs> uh, no, um, it's fascinating uh, to hear Michael's assessment uh, uh, of, of of the case and some some free legal advice for the former president. You don't usually get you don't get that everywhere, folks. Did you get it here? Um, no, that's it, all it that also, Donald Trump ever wants is free is free well, legal advice. He didn't want to pay for the it. The check's not going to clear. So <laughs> although although John, we do remember from the January sixth hearing, Hirschman, uh, the the White House counsel, giving. Eastman free legal yeah. advice. Yes. Right. Get That's yourself right. a good effing lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> that was good. That was good free legal advice. Probably was. better than mine. Get yourself a fucking lawyer, pal. <laughs> bada bit, bada boop, bada beep. Anyway, go ahead, go John. So yeah, so yeah, it's it's interesting to hear uh, that that Michael would take this thing to trial. You know, every other legal experts I've heard uh, analyze this case also say that they don't necessarily think it'll be an easy conviction misdemeanor or felony uh, to get Trump on, on these charges. So um, I'm not sure why they're moving ahead uh, like this politically now um, convicted or not convicted. I, I don't, I don't get the sense. This is the one, this is the case that's going to knock Donald Trump out of political contention by any means. Uh, he'll use it like he already is using it to say he's being, uh, quote persecuted, yes, uh, by the left and liberals in New York and Georgia and uh, everywhere else you can think of, and he then by extension says, you know, they're coming after me because they really uh, are coming after the American people, mostly conservatives. Um, so if it's a misdemeanor or a felony conviction, I I don't think um, I don't think that'll matter very much. But and if he goes to trial, especially, yeah, he'll try to use this <laughs> try to use this every day in what's been so far a lackluster campaign launch um, <laughs> that he's mostly running on truth social, which I'm not sure that that's the best uh, campaign strategy, but there was a story, I believe yesterday in the Washington post, excuse me, that his campaign team is thinking about all of this pretty seriously and how, um, how they would manage a campaign and how they would manage this candidate. Uh, if he, you know, we're on trial or we're facing multiple charges or, or one set of charges. So uh, Trump world is is thinking about this. It sounds like they're planning for multiple indictments while he's a candidate for president. And that's probably a smart strategy um, uh, to start getting ready. And that's unprecedented. You know, there's no. Now, how would you like no, to be in that? There's no rule book. Yeah, <laughs> there's no guidebook for them to run a former president who's been indicted possibly on multiple very serious charges. Yeah. Um, He's also been impeached twice. <laughs> so it's, yeah, essentially what they're doing at Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster right now and other places in Trump world, they're writing that the guidebook on how yeah. to do this. And, and we'll see, you know, there's no one because it's unprecedented. So when he gets, no one can say treason. what this means politically. We don't know what any of this means politically. No, I, I, th well, but to your point, let me just put in, you were talking about how he's he's going to make hay out of it. I'll share with you the wonderful email I got from Donald this morning. Oh. It's a picture of him pointing at the camera going, they only hate me because I fight for you. Reflection on what you just said, John. And mm -hmm. the wonderful caption, this is what's become of our republic. No longer is America about issues and elections, but about buying henchmen to do the dirty work of corrupt, shadowy billionaires. So it's Donald Trump owning Donald Trump. Uh, I I don't I think when they're sitting there writing their um, writing how their campaign strategy, I think it's all going to be just deflection and and thrown back. Blame George Soros, which is what he does here, and continue to run and grift. But that's just me, Michael. You had something. Well, I was going to say that what what's interesting about a Trump candidacy. And say this misdemeanor case, which assume they bring it, you have that ongoing while at the same time, you have this defamation case, uh, Jean, e. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit, where a federal judge just ruled on Friday that the uh, infamous Access Hollywood tape, that tape in which the president is heard to be boasting about groping women, can be introduced as as evidence in that trial, as well as um, in, in the uh, related 
case that is being brought uh, for, under the, the uh, by by um, Carol also uh, for uh, I forget what the, the name of the statute is, but it's the the statute that allows you to bring cases as an adult that was uh, were blocked by the statute of limitations and now right. is allowed uh, to get. They're going to allow. Oh yes, it's called the uh, Adult Survivors Act. Um, she has a separate lawsuit, better known uh, as the Donald Trump Act. But go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a sex it's a, it's a sexual assault lawsuit against Trump, and in that case, she's allowed to bring in other witnesses, other women who have similar claims. So she's going to have a case where three people are going to say he did this to me. Then she's going to have this case that said he defamed me and the Access Hollywood thing. So you have all these things that are potential judicial determinations that he is a liar. Now, you might say, well, you know, what's new about him being a liar? I think it's different when a judge or a jury says this person has lied and uh, the evidence. Uh, uh, yes, that can be a felony if he does it in court. Well, yes, theory. if he has to if he has to go, that's right. If he has to testify, if he just chooses to testify um, in that case, and he's been invited to testify before the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which I expect that he will decline uh, yeah but but so if you have these cases where you have judicial determinations that this person is uh a, remember the famous um line by reggie jackson when he was asked about something that pertained to a fight that he had with billy martin and he said of billy martin he's a congenital liar and he said yes. a stockbrenner he's a convicted liar um and so we have might we might have here in one person the congenital convicted liar, and that's <laughs> not a um, a good foundation upon which to run a campaign where you cap well you have to get more than your MAGA base. There, there you go, John. Let you have last word on this one before we move on. You know, it. I do wonder about Trump fatigue as we enter this this phase of of all of these and you know we've got the cases in georgia other cases in new york uh we've got the january 6 cases we're you know trump world is planning for imminent multiple indictments and you know we've been through the the whole country's been through the ringer with this guy uh since 2015 and and i do wonder if if trump fatigue starts to set in as i mean this will dominate the news we will we will be like sharks at a feeding frenzy when this starts. And, you know, Trump will try to say I'm being victimized, but I, I do wonder if, if the fatigue will set in. And is there any, but is there anyone in the Republican field, at least we think uh, will get in the 2024 primary who can take him down despite the Trump fatigue. So I think, you know, this thing's a jump ball right now and, and we really don't have all the answers. Well, I will say to uh, um, to end this, I'll I'll end with a Reggie Jackson, my favorite Reggie Jackson quote, Michael, and, and that is the only way I'm going to win a Golden Glove Award is with a spray paint. But anyway, <laughs> moving on past past that, uh, this week we've also seen, uh, among other things that are of interest, the continued uh, Fox media fallout, the media watch suit that's come, the 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 Tucker tape this past week. The one, we've talked some of this, we've kind of been following it, and I feel for the reporters I do know at Fox that are real reporters trying to do their job. And John, you know a few of them, and mm -hmm. Michael, you probably do too. And they're they're good people trying to do their job. Look, you can't blame them for getting a job at Fox. Fox hired them. They're trying to do their job. One of them, Jackie Henrich, who was. Uh, they tried to get her fired because she checked, she fact checked Donald Trump talking about your congenital liars. He is. Um, but is as we go forward, I guess what I want to look at is the hit that this means for all of us in the press. And John, I, I'd love your first take on that. I mean, because I get, you know, it, it's bad enough. They think we're, we're, you know, our, our, our credibility is low as it is. And this does lay low Fox's credibility, but in many ways, this yeah. is a, a a paintbrush that hits all of us. Yeah, it's really unfortunate uh, that folks, you mentioned Jackie, uh, John Roberts yeah. over at Fox, yeah. of course. We worked alongside in the White House. Yeah. And and our buddy Trey Yinkst is, is over in the Middle East. Uh, Risking just, his life. 
And in Ukraine, yeah, risking his life uh, to tell the stories over there. So they have quality journalists uh, who who do try to to do it the right way. But you know, this prime time lineup really from five o'clock on, starting with with the five, which is the most popular cable news show right now on television, and it just rolls right. I think right through to midnight. And these aren't reporters. We know now from their own internal communications that they're. They may believe some or even all of, of what they're putting out there, but they are playing characters. The, the, this is not a journalism production. This is something else. Um, you know, I've said here and, and other places, there should be a bug on the screen that says commentary on, on all these right. shows to make it clear. The problem is people people take it very seriously. They treat it, they treat it as there's no difference in Lester Holt over on NBC and Jesse Waters uh, in yeah. prime time on Fox. And that's a big problem. Now, there's a media literacy atrophy that's happened just in society here. Um, and I don't know what we can do about that. But um, yeah, you're right. This, the, you know, I was reading some of the comments uh, getting ready for this. I didn't watch Tucker, uh, Tucker Carlson the other night when he played some of the January 6th footage that uh, Kevin McCarthy turned over. But um, I was reading some of the quotes and it's just, it's selective, it's misleading, it's false, and he presents it as fact. You know, I'm to the point with Tucker, I'm studying the character that Tucker's playing. You know, short, definitive sentences, uh, really, really wild rhetoric, and 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 then come back with, you know, a short declarative, that's a lie. This is patently yeah. false. And it works for a certain segment of the population, Um you know, they think everything Tucker says is gospel. I don't know what the rest of us do about that, except we keep do, trying to do our jobs and 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 do it the right way. I don't know, you know, to, Fox has been through this before in the courts, and they argue that um, Fox, uh, Fox personalities basically know what they're doing is false. Yeah. They, they know they're putting on a show, and they hide behind certain legal protections um, so I'm not sure what punishment might come of this, if anything. One thing about the media matters lawsuit that, excuse me, maybe Michael can can help me out with is, you know, they're claiming that this was a gift to a political campaign, but but everything in the suit is after election day. It's the it's the big lie after election day. So I'm not sure how that benefited a political candidate. Michael, your your take on that? Well, I I don't know. Um, that whether something is before or after um, an election is is outcome determinative of it because you can make contributions to political candidates for you know any period of time and most candidates always are asking help me uh, retire my debt and all that so the yeah. timing may not be matter okay. uh, all all that important um, okay. But to your to your broader um, point that um, Tucker Carlson is playing a character, I think that's right. I, you know, for the law class that I teach at American University, I went back through my archives of old appearances on various shows. And back in the Clinton Lewinsky days, I was a, a regular on on Fox. Fox was a different station than than it is now. It was actually trying to be a media station. I would appear on Hannity and Combs. I remember Sean Hannity had a, a crossfire type show with a guy named Alan Combs, who was a, a liberal. And then I appeared a lot with with Tucker, who I liked at the time. And, and I thought he was you know, trying to be a, a journalist. And now I look at him and I look at my tapes when I appeared with him and it's two different people. And and this is a caricature of, of something uh, awful, I think, that he that the, the, the role he's playing. And I would hope that at the end of this whole process that Murdoch decides that it's in the country's best interest to behave in a different way. I'm not optimistic about that, but as a branding matter, this is just a terrible, I think, brand to have that you are a, actually a propaganda outlet for a particular point of view rather than a news outlet. Uh, you know, I don't know that's a, a sustainable uh, model over over a long term, but you know what do I know? He's a billionaire, and I um, 
I'm and not. we are not. <laughs> I'm going to say a couple of things. First of all, I'd recommend for mm-hmm. all uh, listeners that you watch a movie. If you want to see where this where this all came from, what it's all about, and strip away some of the uh, some of the accoutrements and just go for the bare bones, take a look at a movie called A Face in the Crowd, I believe is the name of it, an Andy Griffith uh, movie from back in the 50s, which will give you a good idea of what we're looking at today as far as Tucker Carlson. But I'll also say for those that have uh, commented, and I've seen many comments on Facebook, Oh, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Spoutable, whatever, whatever your social media venue is, that this was that Tucker Carlson gave us an unedited view of what happened. And that's just plain, unadulterated bullshit. You, any video is edited. If it were unedited, you'd be staring at 40,000 hours of videotape. So he edited it. Now, the idea that it was a mostly peaceful, uh, protest that's not relevant to the charges you can be mostly peaceful most of your life it's when you murder someone that you're going to get prosecuted for it and trust me it doesn't take it takes far less time to harm someone than it does to be normal and quiet i've interviewed serial killers that were normal and quiet i've interviewed multiple uh murderers who have been as sane and as calm and as rational as anyone one minute, it's what they did in the next minute. And it's that video, which is shown everywhere else, which is indicative of the problem of January 6th. Did they walk up the the street peacefully? Well, in some cases they did not. In most cases they did, but that's not, that's not the issue. That has never been the issue. And the way that Tucker Carlson framed that particular a piece that he aired is disturbing. It is, uh, for me, I, I find him a traitor to, to America by that. I find him, he's purposely misleading people. And I'm being told that what I saw firsthand with my own eyes on the day of the insurrection doesn't matter that it's what Tucker Carlson, who wasn't there, who wasn't an eyewitness, it's what he's showing me that is relevant. And that is that goes back to the, you know, uh, don't believe what your eyes are telling you. It, it's like, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz, pull the screen back, people. It's not real. So that's, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with that. Anybody else want to toss well, one yeah, in? Can I, just, can I just jump in also to say one thing, which is I just don't understand the theory that um, McCarthy is operating under in giving this to Tucker Carlson, knowing that Carlson would cherry pick it, knowing the blowback from firsthand eyewitnesses who were there, including many members of the GOP, um, Senate and House. What, what, maybe I'll ask you, John Bennett, what, what was the thinking here? What was the, how was it thought that giving this to Carlson to have him cherry pick it and release it in a way that was so misleading um, would mm-hmm. inure to his or the GOP's or anybody's benefit. What 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 was the John, idea? You that? I know, take a whack I know at it that? was. I know. Yeah, it was, uh, easy easy know, answer. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was saying, John. I know this was this was part of his um, Faustian deals to get yes. be the speaker. But what just, what what was it that 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 was thought that would be advantageous. You can't, you can't take a videotape of a riot and, you know, pick six seconds of the, the march to the riot and say, look, they're just marching. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't understand. I, so, Phil, yeah. I, I think you answered your own question, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> the, the goal, the goal was to become speaker of the house and to get yes. the votes that he needed. And he had to keep giving things away and saying yes to, to things that otherwise I don't think, Kevin McCarthy would have done. I don't think he would have done this on his own. Um, but the goal, how does it breathe on his own? <laughs> well, this does keep, I mean, this, this does, um, it keeps, it, it keeps a sec that Trump section. Um, sated. Yeah. It, it keeps them sated. It, it keeps them somewhat on the reservation, so to speak. It keeps them in the tent for now. I don't know if there was a broader, Goal. I mean, there is a narrative. A, a lot of Republican lawmakers uh, will tell you that it was bad, but you know, it wasn't. They don't think it was necessarily 
you know, this big, huge planned orchestrated event. And in some regards, they, they do think that some folks got carried away and emotional and went into the Capitol. Um, but, but they weren't part of any, you know, formal planning, but a lot of other Republican lawmakers say there is a lot of planning there. So there's a divide within the party. Um, I, I am like you, I think this, um, this, this brings up those divisions within the party. I don't. I don't see how it helps them keep the team together down the road. Um, but I. Th I think that the ultimate goal here was I had to say yes to this, um, and I picked. I picked Tucker Carlson. I. I want to know why they. Why he picked Tucker Carlson. Uh, that's something that hopefully somebody will will report out. I don't. And we don't know the deal. Again, we never saw. Um, we never saw the last day negotiation. Everything else was put in an amendment, but we never saw those last few things uh, that pushed him over the finish line and got him help get him the votes. And 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 this appears to have been one of them. Yes, he had to deep throat them. Um, I, I'll take the last word on this before we take the break. I'll say that it and it is part and parcel part of American politics to kick the can down the road. I mean, it's starting with Thomas Jefferson and. And, you know, they wanted to uh, eliminate slavery from the very beginning, but kick that can down the road because otherwise they couldn't get the southern states to join up in, in, in uh, you know, a union. So, I mean, from from the very beginning of our republic, that's kind of the way things have worked in Congress is kicking cans down the road. And that's what this did. Uh, OK, we'll kick that can down the road. We won't have to deal with it. Someone else will deal with it. Um, but it, as far as picking Tucker. I think it's Tucker's relationship, his high profile and his ratings that made him the, the obvious choice uh, to uh, present this particular bit of disinformation to the American public, sate the, the, um, the base and to continue the argument for another day so they can obfuscate and not do anything. But that's just me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, oh, another wonderful man of the GOP, Ron DeSantis, and we're going to stay on the House GOP members and what they're doing in Congress. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. This is our, our Sunday uh, weekend review, uh, reviewing all the wonderful things that the media and everybody else has done all this week. And joining me again is Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor, and John Bennett, editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call. And John, you've covered uh, Congress for quite a bit, and the GOP got a bit of grief this week for some of the move that's that uh, trying to – are they really trying to destroy Medicare? Is this another uh, ruse? Is this for real? <laughs> Tell me, my brother. <laughs> this is a classic case of, of, of talking yourself into a trap, and boy, I've done that. Um, <laughs> they, we don't want to know about your dating experiences, brother. Hey, now. <laughs> hey. um, it's so so they have a math problem and they have um they you know they they well, part of this bargain that that McCarthy struck with the conservatives to become speaker um is the house would would balance the federal budget now that's not going anywhere in the senate but you know they say they're they're writing a budget that will do that um they but they've already they've already beaten the the defense hawks and the more moderate uh republicans who have to run in the some of the few remaining competitive districts um well you can't you know defense is off the table it's going to be a trillion dollars a year you know in five or ten years we can debate whether that's actually needed another time 
Uh, but and with, they don't want to fight. And to your point, they don't want to fight Biden, who is increasing spending, mm -hmm. because that's kind of been their bailiwickian. Yeah. We've got to be strong on national defense, yeah. so they're not going to go against themselves. So right. I think Biden Biden's defense uh, budget request that came out Thursday, I believe, is eight hundred thirty six billion dollars. So if you take that off the table and Republicans, you know, they claim to the State of the Union um, that Biden was being unfair, saying that they want to cut Social Security, and Medicare. Well, if you want to balance the budget and you're taking defense out of it, <laughs> how are you not going to cut Social Security and Medi Medicare? That's essentially um, the White House's argument right now and, and, and Democratic lawmakers' argument that uh, when Republicans say they're taking those two entitlement programs off the table, they're being disingenuous or they just don't get it. I'll leave it to the I'll leave it to our listeners to decide which. <laughs> and the point being, in that case, Biden has said no cuts because he's going to raise taxes on the rich. And I don't think that sits well with the GOP, does it? No tax cuts ever for anyone. It doesn't matter if you make four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year or right. if you make four hundred and fifty dollars a year. Uh, they oppose that. It, that is they are as opposed to any tax cut as most of us but, are to ISIS. And, and, and they're opposed to tax increases for the rich. That's correct. Yeah. That, no tax cuts ever. That's no, essentially become yeah. because they've become such an absolutist party and everything's black and white. So even when you have a math problem, and that's what the federal budget is and the federal debt, um, it's just become such a part of their ideology. And it's it's such an emotional thing for them that that you can't you can't even uh, raise on 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 the highest earners. And Biden said um, in Philadelphia, he, he went to, to Philadelphia because he goes to Philadelphia a lot, but it's also a swing state and um, <laughs> to roll out his budget. And he said he picked four hundred thousand dollars as the threshold for this tax hike. So Republicans couldn't accuse him of raising taxes on most Americans. Um, they didn't stop them from doing just that. Of course. <laughs> Michael. Your thoughts. What's the, what's the question for me now, John? Is the, John, no, I'm just saying, John has so comprehensively answered everything. What, what? Well, oh, you're you, too kind. <laughs> so the question remains it, it, when you take a look at it and you view it from outside, uh, the GOP does have a math problem. How does that play in rural, rural America? And, and uh, well, particularly, how does it play with the base? I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I'm always amazed at how rural America and um, sort of working class America in non-urban centers have been convinced to vote against their own economic self-interest. It's it's one of the most puzzling things that people will vote against their own self-interest because of the dem demagoguery of of the Republican Party around uh, the social wedge issues. So I don't know how this will play. I mean, it should be that everybody in America says uh, no no cuts to social um, net um, uh, policies and period, full stop, move on, find another way to uh, balance your budget or fund your priorities. But it, as I say, it's a, it's a mystery to me why people don't understand that this is not good for them. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know, it, Brian. I, it's no mystery to the GOP that, that, that facts do not have to intrude upon their argument. As John said, they've become a very binary uh, you know, black and white type of party, yay or nay, and and reality has nothing to do with it, which brings me, of course, to Ron DeSantis. <laughs> there, there has been speculation as to whether or not the Florida governor would jump into the race in 2024, with some saying that he might wait until 2028 uh, because of the fact that the more people that are doing the math, which the GOP uh, apparently cannot do, but if you do the math, the more people that jump into the fray on the Republican side, the better chances are for Donald Trump, because Donald Trump holds on to a considerable number of votes in the GOP, a base that if there are five or six candidates will certainly allow him to squeak through and become the uh, the nominee in 2024. But the question 
is has Ron DeSantis done a little bit of math and figured that Donald Trump may indeed be under indictment and just maybe he can bleed some of the uh, the faithful away from Donald Trump. So, John, as we take a look at going into this uh, 2024 campaign season, which is undeniably underway, uh, although, as you said, Trump has spent most of his time on Truth Social, does Ron DeSantis, is he a game changer in the 2024 uh, primaries uh, and, and selection process for a candidate by the Republican Party? I don't think he's a game changer. I think he may be competitive. That's the word. If if we were playing fill in the blank, I, I think he can be competitive with Trump in some places, not all places. Now, Ron DeSantis, again, the Washington Post um, did some some good reporting on DeSantis, a story that it was at least it was in print yesterday. I'm not sure when it was online, but um, pointing out that DeSantis is not a con not your he's 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 evolved since he was a House member and he was, a you know, a conservative, fairly conservative Republican. He was a, not run of the mill, but, you know, your average uh, conservative Republican House member. But since he's become governor, he's no longer a believer that government should sit on the sideline. He's using the Florida state government to target corporations, uh, changes to the education system. He knows where all the levers are. He, he knows how to operate the government to his own whim. So he's not Ronald Reagan. I've heard that comparison. He was at the Reagan Library uh, on his book tour, his book tour. I'm using quote fingers for our listeners. Right. <laughs> uh, his book tour, which seems to be a precursor for his campaign tour. Um, but so where Reagan said government's the problem, DeSantis might have a problem in the primary because he very much has seen government in, in, in the state of Florida, as he calls it, the free state of Florida. Yeah. He, sees, he sees government, maybe not as the answer, but he sees government as the tool to get to the policy destination. That's different. That that That's different than the rest of the Republicans that we think are going to get in the field. Um, the difference between he and Trump is Trump only started at the very end, and Brian, you and I were there at about the third year, halfway through the third year, right before COVID. I had the sense that Trump was figuring out where the levers were in the federal government, yeah. where he where he could just do stuff, and and how he could make the system work for Donald Trump. DeSantis knows that even better than Trump. Trump is kind of a a novice at that, but DeSantis would come in day one and. He might not know exactly where the levers are, but he knows they're down the hall and and in room two hundred one at the well, State yeah. Department, or <laughs> yeah. you know he 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 he'll know where to go at the EPA, for instance. So, DeSantis is is a different kind of candidate, and I expect you know Nikki Haley, her say what you will about her policies, and 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 I know a lot of people have, and they'll continue, but her campaign is professional, it's sharp, and I would expect that that they see this too with DeSantis. And uh, Trump, I don't know if Trump will be that sophisticated, but I think some of the other candidates will go after DeSantis as, wait a second, we think government should get out of the way, like Ronald Reagan said, and this guy is using it, um, he's using the government to get involved in people's lives, and I think that might stick. Yeah, that's a cudgel that will that I think will stick with the base, because that's also one of the things that Donald Trump has, has preached mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah. Michael? You think well, DeSantis is an activist. I mean, there's no no question. Just like, you know, we've heard criticism over the years of we don't want an activist Supreme Court. Well, the answer, of course, was we don't want a liberal activist Supreme Court. But yeah, right. We're very happy to have a conservative activist because this Supreme Court is incredibly activist. And in respect of government, we want government out of our lives as long as it's about issues that we disagree with the government on. But when it comes to uh, reproductive rights or banning books or other things, we're quite happy to have government um, in our lives to uh, to advance our agenda. And I think that DeSantis understands that, and he's touching, um, you know, through direct action, all of these sort of what he would call these woke issues um, right. to. Um, dismantle them. And I think that's going to resonate with, with the, the MAGA base. I, I was at a comedy club the other night. 
uh, out here in, in Las Vegas, where I am uh, this week. And the, the joke that got the biggest laugh was about so, something about woke going to die. People cheered about woke dying. I don't know if they even know what woke is, but they do know that woke going to die is, is a, a catchy phrase. And DeSantis is the one who sort of um, penned it. Um, so, you know, there's something there to his campaign. He is a smart guy, um, you know, in a, in a not necessarily does he know the capital of um, different countries smart, but <laughs> he knows how to manipulate. Um, I don't know if he knows the difference stories. between Mickey and Minnie Mouse, but that's. <laughs> well, I, if, he well makes, if he makes if he makes that mistake in the wrong way, it's going to really be punishing. Uh, I, I think that you make an excellent point, though. Ron DeSantis, the, look, I believe he has all the appeal of roadkill. But he has, and that's to those who are already not listening to the authoritarian voice of the Republican Party. The fear, I, I like what John said about, you know, he could be competitive, but the concern is that not only will he be competitive, but if Donald Trump does end up facing the long arm of the law in one or multiple indictments, does at that point Ron DeSantis become the go-to guy in the Republican Party. And if that's the case, and Ron DeSantis ends up with the uh, with the nomination from the Republicans, that turns 2024 into a far different presidential race, in so much mm -hmm. as, to John's point, Ron DeSantis knows how to pull the levers of government. And if we're not talking about potential authoritarian regime. We're talking an honest-to-God authoritarian regime that will be harder to fight against. And I don't even think the Democrats have a good understanding. Of course, I always think that they have no head, but um, and while the Republicans have no heart. But I, I don't think there's a real understanding of just how dangerous he is, particularly for the free press. He's already proven Ron DeSantis has already proven that he's not only no fan of the free press, but he's willing to change laws to enable people to sue the press far easier, therefore, and to get rid of confidential sources, therefore making it far harder. The two touch points as journalists, the protection of our sources and the ability to make a mistake on public figures without retribution, unless we make it maliciously. You remove those protections and we are done as a free press. And I think that's the scariest part of Ron DeSantis being on the campaign trail. John, I'll give you the last word on that and then we'll move on. <laughs> well, I, I think you, know, you make good points. I can't you, I can't speak more eloquently than you on, on press freedom. Uh, so I'll, I'll let that stand. I will say this <laughs> well, I thank you, sir. about DeSantis as a candidate. And the three of us, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are sports fans, and I am a big believer in the eye test with sports teams and, and, and athletes. And I'm not there yet on the eye test with Ron DeSantis as a candidate. I He hasn't convinced me yet that he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump over the long haul and that he can yeah. break through with the base. I just don't see it. It's almost like you know, it's almost like Bradley Beal here with the Washington Wizards. Sure, he's a nice player, but he's not going to win you a championship. And I kind of get that vibe so far from DeSantis as, as a candidate. Now, he may surprise me and he may go all the way and he may be the next president. But right now, I'm I'm, I'm just not there yet. Well, I think it all I, I think one of the key things that we have to look at, one of the one of the, <laughs> one of the factors, as I said, is what happens to Donald Trump? An indictment right. or multiple indictments may move the base towards DeSantis. They had right. They have to go somewhere. Yeah. So we're going to take a short break. We'll come back with a little bit more and answering a few of your letters. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, just ask the question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content, 
not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With me once again is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and John Bennett, CQ, roll call editor at large. And so speaking of sports, I'm going to skip the Iranian Saudi Arabia thing. I'm going to go straight to sports. We're going to go. We're going to talk about sports. the Washington commanders are for sale and they may make a deal. And and they're not the Yankees, Michael. <laughs> but, the, but for uh, for the Washington D.C. fans, uh, is this good? Well, look, nobody likes Snyder. They they consider him the Trump of the sporting world. Even even the base doesn't like Snyder. But John, are we going to see a sale? Is it going to happen? Well, I'm not. Uh, you know, this is another. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, Snyder has pulled the the rug out from under Washington fans, not so much on a sale, but he, he's pulled the rug out on all number of things over the years. Um, so, and, and he's a very vindictive guy, and he's got a lot of uh, a, a lot a lot of things that he's upset about, a lot of enemies that he like to settle scores with. You know, he's got to get his price, and that are you that, talking about Mike Pence or Snyder? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so I I I'm. The, this last week, I, I started to get to yes on he's selling the team. And there is a local group. I I don't think he's going to sell it to Jeff Bezos because the Washington Post has done a lot of investigative reporting into <laughs> all of the many problems at, at Commander's Park out in Ashburn with the workplace. Are you going to say that Snyder the, is basically butt sore and won't sell to Jeff? I don't think he's going to sell to Jeff. I don't think it makes sense for Jeff. Why would, why would Bezos... Uh, want want this franchise. He's a Seattle guy. The Seahawks are about to be up for sale. They don't need a new stadium. That stadium right. might need some upgrades, but that's a nice stadium with a rabid fan base. You know, they're a quarterback away from being good again. Here in Washington, they need a stadium. They don't have any land. Maybe RFK. It's a mess. So whoever's going to buy this thing, I think local ties is going to help. And there is a group, uh, Mitchell Rails, and Josh, well, it's, it's basically Josh Harris is leading the group, but Mitchell Rails is a local billionaire. He lives in the area. Um, Harris is from here originally. That group makes a lot of sense to me the more I hear about it. And I I sense by bringing Rails in, he, he has more cash to offer to the deal. Uh, Snyder has said he wants $7 billion. It looks somewhere closer to six. Uh, some of the groups have offered, you know, 5.5, 5.7. That's not enough for Dan. Um, he's almost there. It seems he's almost there. He wants some legal, some help with his legal bills down the road from the other NFL owners. I think they're negotiating that. Jerry Jones, owner of the Cowboys, is involved. Um, so oh, they're another dynamite to, individual. The league, the league wants this basically done at the end of the month when the owners gather for their annual big, uh, big conference, big meetings. Um, they want at least you know the paperwork started and a new owner, like owner elect beginning to transition to full ownership. So I think it's happening, but if Snyder pulls, if Snyder pulls out and keeps the team, I won't be shocked. Michael. Well, <laughs> I, I agree with John that I think the uh, Josh Harris group, and remember Harris is the owner of the 76ers, the Philadelphia 76ers, the New York, New Jersey Devils. So, the, you know, this rounds out his uh, ownership interest and, um, rails adds, you know, local uh, connections, and none of neither of those guys have the same sort of asterisk next to their name that uh, the Amazon owner Bezos has, uh, because people, you know, love to hate Amazon in in many ways. So, uh, you know, I would think that uh, it'd be less controversial to have the the Harris group buy. Uh, they seem to have both offered about $6 billion, which is unbelievable. Do either of you guys know what Snyder bought the team for? 38 cents. No, I, it was, he got it. Much less. Much, much less. less. Yeah. <laughs> that, I could do a quick search on that while we got you online. Go ahead. But so, 
you know, I, I think that it behooves Snyder to sell before the owners take action. Eight hundred uh, million. Eight hundred million, and he's gonna. And how? When did he buy it? May of 1999. In May so, 1999, Dan Snyder purchased the Washington Redskins along with Jack Kent Cook Stadium, now FedEx Field, for $800 million following the death of previous owner Jack Kent Cook. At the time, it was the most expensive transaction in sporting history. And so, now, just a mere, what, 24 years later, good Lord, has he owned it that long? Holy crap. <laughs> well, the holy crap in the sentence is he... Turned a, a billion dollar investment into a six billion, $6 billion dollar investment, investment. Yeah. in twenty years. You know, I need uh, his financial advisor. <laughs> All but, right, but, you know. Be, so before I was going to the, the end of the sentence was there's a risk that uh, with the the toxicity in that locker room and all the other allegations, uh, the the allegations of two sets of books against um, Snyder and all that. He he faces the realistic possibility of being forced to sell, and I think that as a matter of pride, he'd rather say, "Look, I uh, I just made five billion dollars in in twenty years, and um, it was been a good run. Thank you very much." Yeah. Uh, rather than I've been forced to sell because of you know impropriety. Speaking of impropriety, forced to sell. Let's move on to our last issue before we get to letters, and that is Mike Pence saying. <laughs> that Donald Trump should be made to pay for January 6th. I find it a little ironic that a man who won't answer a subpoena is now saying we should hold Donald Trump accountable. We can hold Donald Trump accountable far easier if Mike Pence would step on the stand. Michael? I agree exactly. So what you're referring to is in Washington, D.C., there's a thing called the Gridiron Club, which is a, a, a gathering of... Washington uh, media and political elites, and they are supposed to have a good time with skits and jokes. And they often have a speaker or two that tries to make jokes about themselves, like at the Washington Correspondents' uh, dinner. And then they turn serious for a little bit. And Pence was one of those speakers, and he made some pretty uh, awful jokes. And then he said to to get serious that Donald Trump will have to be held accountable in some way for what he did because you know sort of it's it's on him and it's a knock against our um democracy that what what occurred and what brian is referencing is he says trump has to be held accountable but at the same time he refuses to testify before the january 6th committee and He's fighting a grand jury subpoena for his testimony on this spurious claim that somehow as the, you know, sort of ceremonial head of the transition of power in the Senate, he has a speech or debate clause immunity. So here's this guy who's saying accountability is required, but just don't count on me um, to get you that accountability. <laughs> and, it, and it's the height of hypocrisy, I think, to say that he who has perhaps as important testimony to offer as anyone other than Mark Meadows, another um, lion in, in political cowardice. Yeah. Um, here's a guy who wants to be president, has important information to give, knows that our democracy was threatened by what happened on, on January 6th, knows who was responsible for that and just says, but you can't count on me to be part of the solution, please, you know, give me a break. Yeah. John. Well, I, <laughs> why, 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 why was Mike Pence uh, at the gridiron dinner? I don't. Good I don't question. Know. Thank I understand you. That why, why this rehabilitation of Michael Richard Pence for what he did one day to, in my mind, shouldn't automatically erase um, you know, he defended the worst of, of President Trump for four years. Um, he did the right thing on January 6th, absolutely. Um, he he was a leader that day. He was a statesman. Uh, he did the right thing. Uh, and that's good. Good for him. Uh, we should all thank him for that. But at the same time, um, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I just, I just don't quite get it. I, I mean, imagine uh, we've all put on tuxedos before. Um, you lose half an afternoon. And so imagine putting that thing on 
putting that thing on, getting to whatever hotel ballroom, going through the security, um, standing in line for a drink, uh, having mass produced chicken or or some steak that's cold by the time the wait the wait staff brings it to your table, and then hearing Mike Pence deliver a set of dad jokes for twenty minutes. Yeah, boy, yeah. I watch I watched a lot of college basketball last night. I think I won. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll end it by saying uh, I'm going to parrot something Michael said, but I'm just going to say it this way. It is the height of hypocrisy to me that you demand accountability and yet you will not be accountable. And that to me is the biggest sin that Michael Pence has made in this. Yes, he did the right thing on January 6th, but to your point, John, for four years, he did nothing but kiss Donald's rump and look where it got him. I was standing there when they when they put together the scaffold and they were going to hang Mike Pence. And it wasn't an effigy, folks. And he knew damn well not to get into that car and, and go with the, the Secret Service that night. He stood he stayed put because he knew if he went, he might not come back. So I'm just saying I just find it completely hypocritical. And with that, we're going to we have one one last thing we in answering some emails. Um, I'm going to ask John first. This comes from a woman named Laura. Laura, <laughs> Laura Squirrel. I don't know. Anyway, that's her. That's how she sent me the email. She says, um, "Having covered Congress for years, how do you rate the current Congress? Do you think it can be productive? What do you think, John? I think the grade here uh, would be incomplete. Uh, it's not gotten off to a rousing start, of course, with the Speaker gavel fight on the floor and closed door backroom deals with Kevin McCarthy and members of the Freedom Caucus and others. Uh, we talked about one earlier. Can it be productive? It can be productive, but you have to really shrink your definition of that. Uh, if it can, if this Congress and President Biden can avoid the first ever debt default, if they can avoid a government shutdown, if they can um, you know, continue to get aid to Ukraine and maybe pass um, uh, the two bills that come to mind are a farm bill probably next year and uh, some kind of additional add-on uh, technology bill that's that's aimed at, 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 at keeping pace with China. If they do those four or five things, then I think you graded a success. It'll be noisy and You'll get the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world saying all kinds of things. And there'll be, you know, these fights inside the Republican Party releasing footage to Tucker. But if they do those five basic things over the next two years, I, you know, you might have to give it a B. There you go. There's the answer. Michael, for you, this comes from Turf Patriot of Virginia. I, I don't know what that means either. As a former federal prosecutor, do you think Donald Trump will ever stand trial or go to jail. And I guess as an aside, do you think he'll, uh, how many times do you think he'll be indicted if he is? It's a great question. It's actually two questions because you can stand trial, be convicted and not go to jail. And I expect that Donald Trump is going to be indicted. I, I expect it's going to occur uh, somewhere across the, the spectrum of cases that are under consideration. Everyone su suspects that Georgia is the first likely case, but none of these cases is easy. There's, no, there's nothing about Georgia that's easy. There's nothing about the New York case. We talked about that, which is easy. So I expect that some prosecutor is going to be unable to resist the temptation of indicting. Whether they can convict is, is another matter, and whether or not the former president would ever get sentenced to a period of time in jail, I think still remains for me a very uh, unlikely uh, scenario. So in answer to the question, I think there's probably uh, some prosecutor who wants to make the indictment. I don't know that he's convictable of any of the cases that are out there at the moment because they're all complicated questions. But if he were convicted on the Georgia case or the New York case, I don't think jail is the likely outcome, and none of those charges um, will result in his being disqualified. The only thing I can say is 
what remains to be seen is if they can get uh, a few more uh, witnesses in the Mar-a-Lago obstruction case, there you may have a federal obstruction of justice case, which could stick. And I, again, I don't know whether a jail term is the outcome of a conviction for obstruction. Um, I think the idea of sending a president behind bars is is very complicated for a whole host of of reasons. But there is a possibility they need they need additional witnesses. They need Corcoran, the lawyer who's fighting. Um, this they're just getting now information from Navarro. The judge ruled that his um, phone messages can be accessed. We're we're waiting on Mark Meadows. So that case is the keep your eye on it as a, a actual really uh, important possible indictment and conviction. And my question comes from Eliza Doolittle thirty three. <laughs> Thank you, Eliza, for the question. Uh, she says you've covered um, every. You say you've covered every president since Ronald Reagan. It was Donald Trump the strangest that you've ever seen? Is it the is it the strangest? Well, all right. For uh, so Brian, I, I thought you covered Herbert Hoover too. No, <laughs> as a small child. That's uh. a, but as this, it is the the strangest thing I've ever seen is not Donald Trump in office. The strangest uh, administration I've ever covered may be Donald Trump, but I think the strangest thing I've ever seen, I just saw the other day, I was, I was walking my dog in the park, and there's a law that says you got to leash your dogs, and I'm walking along, and there's a woman who has an unleashed dog and a leashed kid. Now, I'm not making an editorial comment on whether or not you should leash your kid. I'm just saying, if you're going to leash your kid, and you're in a park where it says leash your dog, at least leash your dog. That was pretty damn strange. So I'll leave, I'll leave it at that, especially when the dog came up and tried to fight my dog that was on a leash and my dog bit that dog. And so I, the woman's screaming that, you know, my dog bit her dog and I'm going, Hey, mine's on a leash. Your kid's on a leash. My, my dog didn't bite your kid. Put the damn dog on a leash. So maybe that's the strangest thing I've seen, but it never changed that, you know, give me, give me another day. That'll change. But anyway, that's, that's it from here. Uh, I want to thank you. This show is just asked the question. John, where can we catch you? Uh, CQ Afternoon Briefing, CQ.com, and uh, my weekly column on RollCall.com every Friday morning. And Michael? My podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin. It's a book-based podcast. This week, I released a book called All the Beauty in the World about this young man who while grieving the death of his brother, went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and remained as a guard there for the next 10 years, living uh, among the greatest art in the world. He's written a very poignant book of, about that. And this coming St. Patrick's Day, I've got a fun interview with a woman named Sammy Katz, who wrote a book called, uh, I forget what it's called, it's uh, Cocktails in Color, about um, cocktail making. So. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's not always serious books. Uh, sometimes it's just feel good books, but it's called That Said with Michael Zeldin. It's on all the various podcast apps out there. And thank you. And I am your host, Brian Karam. This is Just Ask the Question. Join us again next time. We have an interview coming up this week with Jenny Yang, a young comedian who's going to talk about the state of comedy after the infamous slap heard around the world and more so stick around and of course every sunday we're here to talk about the weekend review i am your host brian Karam. thank you so much we'll catch you next time